Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Claire Bogrand, lecturer in Sociology of the Gulf and the Arabian Peninsula at the University of Exeter. Claire has been at Exeter for a while, and she's written extensively on interesting things to do with identity politics in the Gulf, statelessness, the case of the Bidoon in Kuwait. She's got a wonderful book, Statelessness in the Gulf, Migration, Nationality and Society in Kuwait, that was published by IB Taurus in 2017. So I'm really looking forward to talking with, with Claire today about some of these issues. So Claire, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you giving up the time today. No, this is an honour and a privilege. Oh, thank you. It's very kind of you to say. Uh, Claire, can you tell us a little bit about how you, you first got interested in, in these issues and Middle East politics, please? Well, I I believe, like, the Middle East politics in, in general, um, I came to it through language. I was um, fascinated by Arabic, and um, I first went to Egypt to study it, and then Yemen. And somehow in 2003, Fred Halliday, my sort of advisor for master degree at the LSE, said, if you really want to speak it, you take time out of your life, and you go for real. So I went to Kuwait and had a one full year scholarship in Kuwait where I was um, hosted at the girls' dorm of the University of Kuwait. It was really, really a sort of um, full immersion experience where I got to know, I would say, society first rather than politics. Sure. And then really out of sociological concerns, you get into more political sociology. Right. Okay, that's that's interesting. But... What what prompted that that initial interest in in politics, I mean, even more fundamentally, prior to, to to going out and spending time in Kuwait and discovering the political sociology of of the country? What prompted the the political interest? Um, I guess it came. I mean, maybe that's a very blunt one, but it it came from my um my education in Paris was first. Uh, in political science at Sciences Po. So I had this kind of uh, already a background when I came in, uh, to the Middle East, uh, fascinated. And then um, I got really interested in, in nationalism theory and in particular um, the sort of modernist approach that Fred Halliday had about how nations are so completely constructed and I find it so also interested to sort of debunk not only the Middle East but also being extremely critical about how modern day France is as constructed as modern day Kuwait. Sure. So very much yeah through the nationalism prism I would say. Right Uh, that's interesting to know and I think it's easy to see how how that links in quite nicely with the, the stuff that you've been doing more recently then. So, Claire, you, you, you did your, your master's with, with Fred at the LSE, then you went out and spent some time in Kuwait and, and spent time learning the language, and then what happened? You came back to do the PhD. Um, yeah, sort of. I, <laughs> I worked in between so that I could, I could start it like kind of self-finance at the time um, and then went back um, really strong about um, my proposal on, and um, my approach to do the PhD, yeah. Um, the the whole topic of the Bidun came during this, like, kind of year, gap year that I had. Uh, when I came back to Kuwait, I was extremely, um, 
I mean, the experience has been extremely uh, formative, as I said, being like completely immersed and the Kuwaiti um, society experiencing the different uh, hierarchies. Um, remember, I was treated like a student, a female student with uh, very little uh, autonomy. Um, so I was like kind of seeking to talk about it in the London context when I um, got to meet somebody on the train who was very interested and who said I'm Kuwaiti but not really Kuwaiti and finally just explained to me that it was Bidun, that it was an asylum seeker and um, and that's how I came to be aware of it and then I made sure um, the proposal until I came back to academia. Interesting. I was about to ask you what your first in experience with, with the Bidun was but that's that's fascinating. Where was the train? Um, it was coming down from um, Kent. <laughs> right, amazing, amazing. So, where was your PhD, Claire? Um, you mean in, institutionally? Yes. I, I did my PhD um, at the LSE, London School of Economics. Okay, so the PhD looked at the case of the Bedouin. So, for for anyone who's who's not aware of of the Bedouin concept, can you just say a little bit about this this idea, please? Well, the Bidun, well, first of all, for those who are really know nothing, um, it's very funny because it has come to be a completely sociological um, category now. But the Bidun is short uh, or is a metonym for um, Bidun Jinsiya, which means literally without nationality. Um, from my research, it, it appeared that he has it has been one of the names that the category has been holding over time uh, in Kuwait. Uh, and then nowadays is it's referring to um, what we would call in the West undocumented migrants. Here again, I'm I'm being very careful about words uh, and denomination. Um, the, the, the the well the, the word themselves are very contested. Uh, people who took um, and my book is entitled Stateless. Um, stateless already conveys a sort of very legalistic reading. It, it sort of conveys the Western point of view, um, of which I am part, which is why I I, um, I used it. But it's not um, really, well, it's not used by the state of Kuwait that does prefer uh, literally illegal migrants, not undocumented migrants. Um, this is a name that it has imposed since 1986. And this was um, far after, you know, the sort of word bidun, um, uh, bidun jinsiya was used in, in, in administrative documents. But it also uh, tended to be contested by the bidun themselves that, uh, um, I mean, prefer a Kuwaiti bidun, they dislike stateless, even though this is legally correct. Uh, they find that it blurs or it denies any kind of uh, attachment uh, belonging to the country uh, from a sort of identity point of view. So, yeah, first of all, if I if I if I can say um, the term itself um, is a bit of loaded, and then who the Bidun are? Well, um, just to um, two points here. If I can make a short answer, the Bidun are definitely long-term residents. Of um, the Emirates of the of the Gulf, and in particular the Emirates of Kuwait. In Kuwait, um, there um, there are long-term uh, residents who have been settling. I mean, not being present, but at least settling from the 1940s, 50s, until uh, most probably 
um, early uh, 1980s. Um, and um, they claim that they have no uh, other national uh, affiliation and they seek um, and they seek uh, nationality in Kuwait. So this is this drives me to the second point. The the Bidun is a very interesting category because um, to me it it is a part of the population that seeks think it is entitled. To nationality, and this is very uncommon in the Gulf because most of the foreigners would have been uh, brought into thinking uh, or made into thinking that they're anywhere are not entitled or they're they never will be um, entitled. Sure. So, can you say a little bit more about the the processes through which this this took place, then, Claire? Please. Well, this is. Uh, <laughs> This is extremely um, a complicated process because, again, like uh, this is a this is an issue that spans over decades. But maybe two points here um, that comes across in my books. Uh, in my book, the first one is um, obviously it comes from um, the fact that the nationality granted process left people behind. So the national in Kuwait was um, issued in 1959. Uh, then after that, you have had uh, four national committees that were uh, to decide upon who was Kuwaiti and who was not. But uh, what appears here is that from the very uh, beginning, there have been people um, that thought uh, they were Kuwaiti or that they um, applied to be Kuwaiti and um, were not giving a clear answer. So there were really cases that were unsettled from the very beginning. And this is obvious in the official narrative of the state of Kuwait that um, despite herself recognized it because somehow they um, disqualified the entire Bidun population saying that they had been hiding their passport to um, sort of melt or, or hide into this category of undecided cases. So this is very much the origin of it. And then, of course, um, it has sort of um, snowballed. You have different type of processes that makes it a bit more complicated. Um, in, the 19, um, in the 1960s, uh, you have a, a process of, um, well, mercenary or at least um, staff for the uh, defense forces and police recruitment by the state of Kuwait itself, according to tribal lines. Uh, and then you got like people who probably came, were there um, and did not register. This is another uh, narrative that we found. Um, so this is um, this is ver very much the snowballing process until you reach uh, historically the 1980s and the um, Iran-Iraq war, whereby you had suddenly a sort of um, swelling of the number and a completely um, repressive policy that is being decided by a, a select ministerial committee in 1986, by which it says everybody um, whose uh, case is unsettled is illegal on our territory. So what what type of number are we talking about by by this time uh, by by the present time, Claire? How many Bidun would you say there there were in Kuwait? In the in the late nineteen eighties. Right now. Oh, sorry. Right now, um, 
So again, it's just like the name, the, the figures are extremely um, contested. So in Kuwait at the moment, you have a um, what we call the central system for remedying the status of illegal residents, um, short for, um, well, in short central system. So the central system is in charge of the Bidjan population. Its main uh, mission since it was um, uh, set up in um, late 2010 was basically to sort of try to reduce the number um, of the statistics of the Bidun. So um, I say that as an introduction to say that whatever it will release, it, it is a sort of very compressed figures because this is the, the sort of um, figure that the state is obliged to acknowledge as, as existing. So it's a range of um, 88,000 to 104,000. Uh, Bidun said it might be uh, well above. Um, Fieldwork interviews um, sort of seem to point out the direction that this central system is not really willing to register um, uh, new births or, or, or new cases so that, you know, it keeps its um, its number down as its, its sort of main um, uh, main target. Right. Uh, last point, um, because well, I mean that that's the that's the number. Um, but in terms of proportion, we're talking about ten percent, ten to twenty percent uh, of the uh, million and 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 nine hundred thousand Kuwaiti nationals. So it it is a big proportion of uh, of the uh, Kuwaiti. Um, nationals population, leaving alone the foreigners. Yeah, of course, that's it's a sizable percentage. So, Claire, how do how, what? Sorry, what is it that the, the Bedouin are, are trying to achieve? Then they're they're politically active, albeit on the the margins of a political project that denies them inclusive rights and participation. But what are they seeking to achieve here? Well. The the Bidun community has, um, I mean, it has taken some some form of common identity on the late, and and this is um, this is again um, a gradual um, since the sort of first mobilization in the two thousand period. After one decade of complete right denial, you have a sort of gradual organization uh, of the of the Bidun community since. There has been a sort of mobilization movement. Um, the, um, the 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 different claims are, um, I mean, they're not united um, because of the situation of the oppressive policies itself. As I said, as of 1986, you have a gradual deprivation of right, um, starting from health, education. Um, employment until the, the very most um, basic, if it's a rights, but at least like very sort of um, uh, insulted procedure of not giving um, um, certificate of this or this kind of thing. So in the 90s, we are in a decade where there is a complete um, uh, right deprivation uh, period. So when it comes back to fight, um, the, um, the movement, and I would say Kuwaiti and non-Kuwaiti uh, members altogether, uh, are divided over whether to ask rights first and say, well, give us back our civil rights, give us back our right to, to life um, or to lead a normal life. And some other will say, look, but we are 
we want naturalization, and once you're being naturalized, then we will have a uh, we will have our rights back. So, really much, I would say the the policy um, of the government has also divided um, the claims just because. Um, it has been so oppressive that um, the, the sort of urgency at the moment is to claim back like the most basic rights. Um, but, but I mean, the bottom of the issue is very much this this claim of an entitlement to, to nationality that is is being um, even repressed. Mm. That's something I argue. You know, the state takes everything in terms of striping the rights, even the rights to have a, an alternative narrative. Sure. I mean, it, it's it's a complex set of issues that that coalesce around around the most fundamental issues of of, of life and political engagement. But uh, Claire, how do you go about trying to engage with this? Then, I mean, theoretically and methodologically, what what approaches do you use to try and tackle this? Well, I. I really use this this idea of uh, of a narrative. I mean, I used two sort of theoretical angle. One was to sort of approach uh, the movement or the query social dynamics through the margins, like uh, with this idea that once the nationality is positively and legally uh, set up, then this is only through the margin that you can have this little ships and renegotiation of its boundaries. Um, so I'm using um, sort of framework of, of Derrida, how uh, margins is being itself heuristic. Um, and and the second one is very much the, uh, this idea of um, bringing back a, the possibility of a counter-narrative, like starting, as I said, from this idea like James Scott, seeing like state that the state is performative in saying who you are, and then when you say you're illegal, it's tripsing you of everything, including this right to an alternative narrative. Um, so here I'm inspired by this idea of counter-narrative by um, Madawi Rashid and, and uh, Bob Vitalis, saying how you can actually sort of try to uter a different narrative. And here it's not only the Bidun's narrative, it's also, you know, breaking up the, the sort of official wisdom of Bidun being like parasites who came for the welfare benefit, these kind of things, and breaking up completely into a puzzle and having also the different um, components of the Kuwaiti society facing their own narratives. Mm. Um, so really um, the idea was to have a sort of polyphony of voices, like opening the space for it, uh, yeah, for a debate or um, for different voices to be heard. Uh, on this issue, it's fascinating hearing you you talk about it from from that perspective. I mean, from my own work, it, it strikes me that that the ideas of Giorgio Agamben and and the state of exception and, and conditions of bare life would be really interesting to to talk about about this case of of the Bethun stripped of rights and and bound by the laws of the state yet abandoned from the protection of those laws. But it, it's really fascinating to hear you talk about about Madawi Al Rashid's work and the the sort of the engagement in the margins, if you will. And I know you've you've touched on that in terms of of not only Kuwait but also uh, the Bahrain context. So can you tell us a little bit about how those those margins differ across the Gulf, please? 
Well, um, I've, I've like tackled the Bahraini case in sort of um, two different ways. The first one was to start with a sort of comparative uh, a comparative um, a study on statelessness, which I dropped because it feels like the Bahraini trajectory is is a completely different one. And um, don't misunderstand me, Bahrain has also, as all the other Gulf states, maybe apart from Oman, has um, cases of statelessness, but somehow it has um, sort of resolved it in the 1980s uh, and uh, reverted into a sort of new policy of naturalization. Uh, so this the issue it did not really make sense. So this, this was the first... Um, kind of touching upon the margins, but what I've been doing in um, in Bahrain is looking at the urban margins uh, of how Shia or Baharna um, Arab Shia villages were somehow dispossessed of their natural environment and which which also fueled I mean the political discontent that was there already but also this idea of a urban margin of the villages that are kind of island among mm. a sort of sprawling urbanization. They used to be um, palm trees uh, plantation. They used to be nearby the sea, and they're not. They're not anymore. So that's what. I, that's also the connection I drew with the urban margins um, of the Bidun um, urban areas in Kuwait, which I haven't talked about, but which is like a, an important um, a component of the Bidun issues. Yeah. I mean, there seems as well to be a, a spatial theme running through what you're exploring here. Yeah, definitely. I, I did not mention that, but part of my argument about how um, the Kuwait um, process to sort of othering uh, or um, yeah, turning into alien, what I call the manufacturing of alien, is also I do argue that, you know, this boundary that was drawn between um national and aliens was not drawn within the city of Kuwait, but on this margin, meaning that the um, yeah the, the, the line was drawn between Kuwaiti Bedouin and non-Kuwaiti Bedouin who will become the Bedouin, but very materially, in a very material sense, um, in that sense that the distinction was made between those who would get accommodation or housing or state housing and those who would not. So suddenly, you know, something that did not really matter took a very um, concrete sense and the othering was made in the periphery of Kuwait City where people can't really see or couldn't or did not want to see um, and um, very much um, in the margin itself, in the periphery. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I, I wonder, we've, we've taken up quite a lot of your time, but I wonder if you can just say, just, just briefly, Claire, before we let you go, to, to what extent does this, this Bedouin question feed into to Kuwait's delicate sectarian balance? I mean, we know that, that Kuwait has got a, a, a relatively long history of successfully um, circumventing sect-based tensions, unlike some of its neighbours. But but where does the, the Bedouin question fit into that? Um, 
this this is very interesting question in that sense um, um, that it's not in sectarian terms that the Bidun issue was posed um, in the first place, but it has taken a sectarian twist very much, um, very late, I would say. So let me explain that. Um, the, the Bidun come from... Um, from what uh, is known in Kuwait as northern tribes, meaning the tribes roaming like um, Iraq, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, as opposed to southern tribes that would um, roam across the desert with Saudi Arabia. And these tribes um, were known to be um, both Sunni and Shia. So um, I don't know, I must say, um, the, the sectarian balance of the Bedouin population, just like we don't, you know, we just know... Um, what the Kuwaiti states says about the whole population of Bedouin or what the sample says. But anyway, so there are both Sunni and, and Shia. Um, at some point, Bedouin were referring to um, a sort of um, sectarian or really, well, sectarian affiliation mattering for getting help, in particular help from charities of um, Sunni or uh, Salafi Sunni or um other movement that would like proselyte um, among Bedouin and say we're, we're giving our we're giving support provided your your Sunni. So this was like in the, in the two thousand I would say, um, and when the sort of Bedouin case emerged politically in the Kuwaiti Parliament, um, then um, some. Um, some M uh, Shia MP took really uh, strong stances for the Bedouin, um, such but also kind of more Sunni Islamists did in like um, um, for uh, religious uh, reasons, you know, like our brothers in religion are being um, are being mistreated. Um, so, and this is only recently that you know people start to ask. Um, who they are from a sectarian point of view, um, and can they be like the subject to um, sort of uh, proselyte um, uh, tactics from ISIS um, and this kind of thing? So, but I tend to say that um, people have uh, say one thing in the country as for uh, what the majority of Bedouin um, sectarian affiliation is. Right. That that's interesting that it's that it's just started to take on that that type of dimension, that type of question. When do you think that was? Um, I'd say with like the kind of um, uh, terrorist attacks that Kuwait has as with, with, witnessed on the late, like since the uh, uh, two thousand five Alliance Brigade. Um, right. If you re- if you remember those, uh, I. If I want to be completely exhausted, I should say also that the, the 1986 really rupture in policy comes into the, the, the security context of Shia militancy um, in Kuwait. Um, and that's also uh, why there is a great suspicion on, on the army. There is a great suspicion um, on, on Shia national within the army that would explain the context of the 1986. But nowhere um, I find that this was taken because the Bidun would be would be Shia, so this is only the context. But then it comes on the late in the 2000 case, uh, because more of the, um, I would say, more of the um, uh, Sunni uh, violent political actions. Right. And this idea that um, 
that actually, you know, vulnerable people or undocumented people can be targets um, for uh, for violent uh, um, um, militants or recruiter or terrorist organization um, recruiters. Sure. Well, Claire, thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's been absolutely fascinating and and incredibly thought-provoking. There's a lot that I need to to go and reflect on now, and I'm looking forward to dipping back into your book to to help me work through it. But thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Claire. We look forward to speaking to you again. And thank you for listening, as always. Until the next time.